everyone, welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast, where I invite you to reshape your relationship with yourself, each other, and nature. Really, this show is about the interdependence we have with each other, other species, and how we can choose to support that or destroy it. How can we change our perspective so that the actions we take foster the well-being of ourselves and all the other animals and systems on Earth? There are lots of ways we could do that, but today we're going to talk about two of them. First, we're going to consider how we are more similar to other animals than we are different. Second, through that, we can begin to recognize the inherent value other species have not for how they serve us or even for how they're similar to us, but just for being who they are and appreciating it. By doing that, it comes full circle, seeing how everything out there that we call nature, from the air we breathe and the water we drink, to the birds in your backyard, and yes, even the squirrel, clever enough to get those seeds. How are we going to do this? Today, we are tackling a big topic. What is cognition and consciousness? And do other species have it? Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Before we get to our guest, Dr. Christy Biolsi. I want to talk about crows for a minute. Crows belong to the corvid family of birds, and they join jackdaws, rooks, jays, magpies, and ravens in being in that group. Crows are pretty remarkable, as are all the corvids, but we only say that because we're actually comparing them to ourselves and because they can do things that we can do. What can crows do? Well, first, crows are highly social with a complex language. They solve human-designed puzzles, and they use tools and think about the future. They choose the right tool for the job also, which is something that I epically failed at a few years ago when I tried to use scissors to remove a wall anchor. Five stitches later, the doctor asked me, what did I learn that day? I should have replied that I was going to be more crow-like. Instead, what I said was, I learned that you shouldn't use the wrong tool for the job. Now, a big deal has been made about crows that hold grudges, and really, all they're doing is remembering the faces of people, in this case, that harmed them in some way. Compared to crows, we humans excel in this area of holding grudges, often for really minuscule transgressions. A lot of people know a lot of things about crows, but how many stop to ponder the implications of even just a sliver of what I just told you? If crows do all of these things, and we do too, and we believe that we have consciousness and theory of mind, then what about crows? Or any other species for that matter? 
I know I'm throwing out big concepts here and don't worry, we're going to dig into the details of what they mean, how we explore them, and of course, as always, a whole lot more. To help me today, I have Dr. Christy Biolsi, who is an Associate Professor of Psychology at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. She's also the co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Pinniped Ecology and Cognition housed at St. Francis College. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Christy Biolsi to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, you've done such incredible work, and I'm really excited to talk about all these sort of different arms of, of your work from cognition to conservation, mentoring, and public outreach. But first, I'm really curious, you know, because you have such a broad background in, in the things that you investigate, how did you kind of end up on a path um, to studying, you know, animal behavior and, and comparative behavior? Yeah, I'm, I guess I can say it's, uh, you know, kind of the cliche story of since I was a little kid, right? I was really in love with marine mammals broadly, and that's not overly shocking as a, as a human or a young kid. And it never faded. You know, I just was always an animal person, always interested in behavior, um, always, uh, you know, really focused on marine life broadly, was thinking, you know, as I was you know, growing up uh, as a kid going through school, thinking, well, maybe marine biology and so on. So I always knew something about marine life and in particular marine mammals. And then in college, I um, worked at uh, re- two rehabilitation centers. I did internships and um, loved it, but realized as I was taking my classwork and doing that type of work that I was really interested in their behavior. And I loved psychology. And, you know, I had this realization truly in a, in a course. I took a seminar with uh, my advisor at the time uh, and it was on marine mammal cognition. And I was like, whoa, this is a thing like that I could actually, like people do this. Like, you know, they study, they do research and they study marine mammal behavior from a psychological perspective, you know, and also merged with biology. So um, I kind of got into psychobiology, but from an animal behavior side. Um, and it kind of just, grew from there. I went to graduate school and I was in a psychology department, right? So my degree is in psychology, but I was the only one doing work at the Institute of Marine Sciences. So I've always kind of been crossing those barriers. Um, So I I do, as you mentioned, in the comparative cognition in and of itself, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I've always had that interdisciplinary love of looking at it from multiple perspectives um, and how these different realms interact. So that's kind of how I got into it, just with a pure love of of the animals and the behavior and then realizing that there's actually some, you know, a a field that can do that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I got my bachelor's degree at Florida Atlantic University, and we were like Mm -hmm. the first class of a psychobiology. So I have a bachelor's Ah. in psychobiology. I mean, at that university, right? Not in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and at that time, there was not so much on the animal side. It was actually, I mean, I do remember taking um, behavior, biology of behavior, and there was really this sort of crossover from a biological perspective and all of the other courses were more brain stuff, Um, you know, neurobiology really. And, and so it's, I think if it had had more of the behavior component, it, I probably would have sort of maybe shifted in some different way. My realization that people 
sat around and, and figured out why animals do what they do came from reading um, a book, uh, Cry of the Kalahari mm. by Mark and, and Delia Owens. And I was like, wait, people can go <laughs> to Botswana and just follow lions? Right. Like people I think do I, that. I think I want to do that. <laughs> I didn't know that was like a job, like you could do it. Right. right? So sort of similar, you know, realization that this was something you could actually do. And you talk about this love of animals and, you know, this show is about connection. It's called Mm -hmm. Wild Connection. And it's really looking at the many ways that we are connected with each other and with the environment and with other species. And, And so one of the things I also like to try to find out is how do you connect with nature? What's that that place for you? Again, cliche, but if I had to pick a place, I would say the water, ocean in particular, but that's not always accessible, at least um, not every time I want to get out there. But I go outside. I, as, as lame as that sounds, I just like to be outside uh, and, and just pay attention to whatever that is. So whether it's a walk through a park, um, you know, or something more elaborate. I mean, I love hiking, um, you know, even just a, a short little hike. It doesn't have to be anything massive up a mountain or anything. Um, you know, take the dogs, take the kids, um, go to kayaking and paddle boarding on, on a lake near here, you know, to just sit outside and hear the tree frogs at night, you know, and, and, uh, there's just all the birds making noise, you know, in the springtime right now. So it, it really simple things. I mean, they could be big stuff. I guess I like to, you know, snorkel and more extravagant types of ways of connecting, but I really just like to be in it. I just need to get outside in any way that that means. Yeah. That's a really common sort of sentiment um, among many people who really it's sort of just in you that you have to do that. And uh, now you mentioned this drive to be part of researching and understanding marine mammals in particular, Mm -hmm. and you've done a lot of work on pinnipeds. Um, And and so before we like sort of start navigating this space um, and, and end up talking about them, what is a pinniped? That is a great question. (laughs) So it's something that I forget. So I'm glad you asked. I forget. I would have just randomly thrown these words out because as a kid, I was obsessed with all of these animals. So I knew the words when I was really little. And then people were like, I don't know what that means. I was like, oh yeah. You know, it's like, you just get so sucked in. Um, So pinniped is a a group of, of marine mammals and it consists of the seals, the sea lions and walruses. So it means flipper footed or fin footed. Okay, so that's how they got their name. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because ped, petty is like foot, right? Right, right, okay. exactly, yeah. And what's really cool about them as a group, um, and one thing that really got me hooked on pinnipeds versus other marine mammals was that they are amphibious. So they live really important parts of their life in the water as well as on land. And the really, really cool thing, and I'm biased, right? Because I, I love them and I study them, but is their sensory systems, which is the window and the input for their cognition and their thought processing and how they solve problems in the world is all of that sensory input from the environment and that they have to have a sensory system, say vision. Vision has to work underwater and it has to work in air. And 
it's not that easy to do that. It's really hard to build a system that works and functions relatively well in both mediums. So that that's one of the things that really got me hooked on the pinnipeds as a group. Now, now I think I know something about pinnipeds that's interesting, <laughs> but you, you, you can tell me if I'm right. So when we're thinking about adaptations for this sort of ability to do both land and water, breathing underwater is also tricky um, and they can't, they need air, but like us, uh, you know, they have nostrils and they have Mm -hmm. ears Mm -hmm. and, you know, and so from what I understand, they have a special way to basically snap their, their nostrils shut so that no water gets in. Is that correct? Yes and no. So the interesting thing is that they do have something cool about their nostrils, but it's that their default, their resting state is that their nostrils are closed. So they have to actively open their nostrils to take a breath. So if you just see them like resting, their nose is closed. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So that's the default is a closed nose. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. I know many of us would like be happy if we could actually make our nose close right. without holding our fingers over it or wearing a, you know, some kind of mask to prevent water from rushing into your nostrils when you're underwater. Yeah. That's how I talk about it with students. Like, you know, if you're going to jump in a pool or something, you like hold your nose, you know, but for them, their nose is always closed you know, they have to actively open it. And so it's just, you know, it's like having a clothespin on there all the time for us. (laughs) Do their ears close also when they're underwater? Their ears close underwater. They have a dive reflex and that's part of it. Yeah. Fascinating. And the the airways inside their, um, their canal, because it's, it's air to hear on land, like we have, um, it actually has um, a special kind of tissue that engorges with blood that seals off and it swells up um, reflexively when they go underwater. And so it's now all filled with blood and tissue instead of being an open air cavity in their ear. Can they hear underwater? They can. So okay. there's so much here. So let's talk about cognition a little bit. And and I sort of want to start broadly and then kind of zoom in on, on pinnipeds and some of the work that you are doing. You know, I, I, you wrote this wonderful piece, kind of giving this big picture perspective and uh, on your uh, on on the state of, I guess, science when it comes to uh, thinking about cognition and consciousness in other species. And one of the things that you wrote that really resonated with me was this um, statement: "A common view of consciousness is that the human species has it, but all other species don't." And I guess first it would be helpful that we maybe think about what do we mean by consciousness in this context? That is like that we have it and others don't. That is the million dollar question. So there is no agreed upon definition of consciousness. And that's one of the kickers, right? So if you define consciousness in one way, you know, maybe a non-human species, um, you know, has it. But if you define it a different way, then they don't. Right. So that's really the, the crux of the paper is what do we mean by consciousness and changing that definition is therefore going to change the answer that you get of who, meaning which species might have it or even within humans. Um, if we look at the, the spectrum of the human condition um, and the human species, then there would be humans that would be considered not conscious. So, um, you know, I think I write in the paper um, that there was no um, anesthesia or any any pain relief for proceed medical procedures for infants um, historically because there was the belief that they did not experience pain they were not conscious um, so it's you know interesting to see that historically even within humans right so um, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer for what consciousness is, but I think um, we need to reconceptualize it as not one thing um, and really as a spectrum and not um, or a continuum of, of different kinds, right? Um, and not look at whether or not a species has consciousness, yes, no, but do they have a form of consciousness and in what way and, and how might we be able to, to learn about that? And consciousness is like, it's so nebulous, which makes it kind of fun and infuriating all at the same time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to say that an animal is consciousness typically, and, and you know, when, and I, I think from the, the quote that you just stated, you know, it gets at how um, we want to compare and as a comparative psychologist, you know, it's one thing I do, so I get it. We want to compare non-humans to humans, and um, that's not always the right approach, right? So does an animal, besides a human animal, I would argue humans are animals, right? Um, do they have consciousness? Well, maybe, but do they have human consciousness? That's what often the research is asking, right? And that's a lot of times when the person in the you know, general public, just people, you know, who, who will ask, like, are they conscious? It's like, do they ha have consciousness like you and I? I don't know. Um, and in fact, another, you know, part of the paper gets into how do I know that you and I have the same consciousness, right? Yes. And uh, it's really because we talk uh, and, and I just, I, it's called charity, right? We give each other this charity um, and we do that. It's more commonly known the term charity and that idea is in, in um, anthropology, studying other human cultures, right? We assume that they also are conscious, even if we don't understand anything they're saying in their language or their behaviors, you know, if it's a very, very different culture, uh, we still assume that they are conscious because they are human. Um, so it becomes a very, I don't know, interesting idea to me on um, um, what do we even mean by it? And, and why do we even need to compare in that way? Let's just yeah. look at the version of it. Yeah. I mean, and so there's a very similar problem with language, right? Like yes. constantly redefining language to ensure that the human animal has it yes. and the non-human animal doesn't have it. But among certain animals yeah. that talk a lot, maybe they have their own consciousness and their own language and, yeah. and, and the limitation is maybe as you point out also this com this constant need to compare it to humans mm -hmm. rather than thinking about the context and the life of those species i'm curious how much does cognition play a role in how we determine or look at consciousness if any do they go hand in hand I would argue they do. I'm sure there are those out there that would disagree for sure, um, especially on you know a topic such as consciousness. But if you, to, to me, my perspective is that if you really want to look at something that is really philosophical um, and hard to nail down and not a concrete term and one that people can agree on even what the definition is, you know, well then let's look at something that is at least somewhat concrete, um, such as a cognitive mechanism, right? A psychological skill or ability that we have and that we think is linked with consciousness, right? So um, we can look at self-awareness, Right. So there's an idea of depending on how you define consciousness. Um, self-awareness is part of it. You can't be conscious unless you're self-aware. Therefore, <laughs> if you're self-aware, you might 
be conscious. Doesn't guarantee you're conscious, right? But so then we might look at something like self-awareness and kind of pull away from, uh, and I would say self-awareness is still a bit of a nebulous and controversial term, right? So we can keep getting more and more concrete, but we look at that and say, well, are there any other species that demonstrate a behavior that we would, you know, mark as self-aware? And then maybe that species has potential or the building blocks or the cognitive capabilities to either have consciousness or have um, at least, you know, this is another kind of way that people phrase things is a conscious like or language like or, you know, episodic memory. We say episodic like we have to add the word like onto everything. Sure. Uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but it's because um, we don't know. Right. We really don't. Sure. Know. Um, so, you know, do other species have self-awareness and the data is mixed, um, but there is evidence, uh, not without controversy for sure, on different species, in particular cetaceans. So these are um, some species of cetaceans. So um, some dolphin species, primarily the bottlenose dolphin, is the most commonly um, tested. Doesn't mean others don't have it. They're just the ones that we have the most access to for this work. Right. Um, and um, uh, chimpanzees. So the, uh, the, the great apes, more more broadly, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, um, and uh, elephants, which is another really cool one, um, you know, to to look at. And and these are all species that have some evidence of recognizing themselves in a mirror or using a mirror in some way, which has become a kind of classic method. Uh, for humans and then uh, also non-humans now to look at, are they self-aware? How do you interact with a mirror? Um, right. And do you seem to recognize yourself in that mirror? Yes. And and a lot of times it's putting a mark on the individual when they're not aware that a mark is being put on them. And then they, they, they look in the mirror and if they touch themselves, that means that they recognize that what they're seeing is themselves and they've right. seen something on their forehead or in some other, you know, and I know from working with chimpanzees, they use mirrors to investigate at parts of their body that they mm -hmm. can't normally see. And right. And they quite yeah. curious about yeah. what they can look at. Um, but what's also a common thread among all of the species you just mentioned is they're incredibly social. Yes. And so I think another arm that you sort of talk about or another aspect of, I guess, consciousness or how we might think of consciousness is the awareness of others, right? Or this is, I don't know if I'm framing it right or saying it mm -hmm. right, but this theory of mind. Yeah. Um, and, and so first, I'd really love to hear a little bit about the kind of work people are doing using theory of mind, like what is it? And and then sort of circle back to, you know, is there some commonality between us and other species in terms of the need to have a theory of mind? Yeah. So um, theory of mind is often termed or just kind of casually mentioned as um, the ability to mind read, right? So you are aware of other people's minds, that your mind is different than someone else's. So the... <laughs> the the way that you often see it demonstrated, um, the formal term is the false belief task. That's the method that's often used, but it's really looking at some form of deception, 
right? If you can create a false belief in someone else. Now you just anecdotally, and there's tons of research on this, but anecdotally people probably have realized if they're ever around very young kids that um, they assume anything they know, you also know, and they don't kind of clue you into what they're thinking about. They just start mid-thought, start mid-sentence, and we'll just talk. Um, and they won't lie. Like, you know, if you ask them, um, you know, if you're in the other room and then the cookie has gone from the plate when you come in and you say, you know, did you eat the cookie? And they're just like, yeah. Like, they won't even, they, like, it, it's it's really funny to watch, you know, some of the developmental psych research on this um, because the kids are just, it's, 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 you know, adorable, but they're just blatantly like, of course, like they wouldn't even think <laughs> of saying no, because obviously they look at you like you're crazy for even asking, because of course, you know, I ate it because I did, because that's what happened and you must know it. Right. Um, so the, the false belief test looks at the, you know, what, what changes in children around four or five years old, uh, real well around four, it's a, it's a stage. So there's a time period of wiggle room for sure, developmentally, but they start lying and they're luckily bad at it when they're really little, but you can see it. Right? <laughs> so do non-humans do that? Um, and the answer seems to, to be, yeah, um, they do. They, um, and, and this is really, really difficult methodology to do. And you have to be very creative um, in, in your methods. And uh, so like anything like this, it's hard to rule out just straight learning or experience or reinforcement, punishment, kind of basic learning theory stuff. Um, but I think, you know, there's a decent amount that that is demonstrating there's more to it than just that. And so it would really be something like uh, one that I, I really like is, uh, you know, a, a chimpanzee in, in a habitat is um, uh, a subordinate. So they have a lot of dominance hierarchy. So again, the social aspect you mentioned is important. And so the subordinate might be, uh, you know, the less dominant is out there and sees that food is hidden and they want to go get it, right? They see food, they go get it. That's not too shocking, but what they do depends on who's watching them, right? So if I'm a subordinate and I see food hidden and no one's around, I'll go over and grab the food. But if I'm a subordinate and I see a dominant around, I see someone who's above me around, I won't go get that food if that dominant one knows where it is. Well, and so, so this is really interesting because I, I don't know what like PBS documentary mm. was or some documentary that was showing um, a subordinate chimpanzee that had, I think either the food was hidden or they hid the food, but I think the food was hidden. They knew where it was. Mm -hmm. There was uh, other chimpanzees that were presumably dominant around and it seemed really stressed out. Yeah. Like it was really like, it kept looking in the direction yeah. of the food and like watching everybody. And, and it seemed so like, and, and they do in a little bit of that fear grin that they do mm -hmm. just like really seemed anxious about either. And of course I can't figure out what they might be anxious about that. They would, right, right. They would get discovered or that they wanted it, but they couldn't. And, and this sort of self-regulation is yeah. really hard, especially for chimps. Yeah. I hate to generalize, but chimps are not the most self-regulatory all the <laughs> yeah. time. And, and so is it, is, does this sort of qualify what you were describing and, and, you know, because they, they know that others don't know. 
where right. it is. Yes, is that exa- it? exactly. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you're clarifying it. You're saying it better than me. It's that it's one of those things that I find so easy to say if I have a diagram or a picture, but it's hard to verbalize. When you see it, it's really cool. But yes, yeah, so they seem to know the knowledge state. Their behavior changes based on um, the only way their behavior would change is if they had some information about the knowledge state of the other. And that's exactly what you see. So the knowledge state of the other is going to change what that individual animal does. And, you know, you mentioned impulse control is another another really important thing for social species um, as well. Um, And that's really what seems to happen with the kids and then with other species that, you know, do they have it or not um, is often linked to impulse control. Right. Okay. Yeah. Pigeons, I think, have no impulse control. I don't know enough about pigeons, but I would not be surprised. (laughs) There was a study, I think, on gambling and pigeons. Oh, yes. And and the the risk takers. (laughs) But I think it has to do with they just don't they just don't have like impulse control. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Like reward now versus more later. Like now seems like a good time. Yeah. And there's some cool stuff on how some species failed. Even chimps failed a lot of that stuff where like the more, you know, later if I wait kind of gratification um, stuff, once they made it more symbolic. So instead of having the food right there, there was like a symbol that represented the food and then they were able to do that. So you can also tie in kind of, you know, the cognitive aspect of symbolic representation. It symbolic representation allows us to have a separation between ourselves and the thing we might want. And therefore, um, the ability, right, the skill of symbolism um, is very beneficial, you know, kind of interacting with these, you know, with impulse control um, and, you know, other types of things, which are all critical if we live in social groups, because you need to behave yourself, right? Or you get kicked out and then you don't survive. Right. And so it's sort of interesting to me that where we tend to see some of these things are in highly tightly social networked connected species that they really don't ever live on their own. Like that's not really an option. Um, And I'm also curious, you know, I mean, this seems like I, I completely agree with everything you're saying about it being a tricky problem to get at. Yeah. Right. Um, And, and it requires a ton of creativity, but I'm also wondering, and you kind of brought this up, you know, you know, in the beginning, which was, you know, is it reasonable to try to use the same tests that we mm. use for human children, you know, for for non-human or for humans versus non-humans based on differences in ability or what their challenges are, right, in their yeah. groups, in their lives, in their habitats? I mean, dolphins have very different physical experience, yeah. a physical experience in the world, just like seals, right, right. and being right. amphibious, which dolphins don't have. Are we limited basically by either our creativity or the ability to have analogs that would work? Yes, I think so. Um, I think the analogs are good and are helpful, but we need to not get locked into them. And one thing that gets forgotten in the the history of a lot of this work is that the developmental psychologists borrowed work from animal behaviorists. So usually we think that the animal people are borrowing the work from the developmentalists um, that study, you know, babies and so on. But really, when people wanted to study babies and and young kids, they said, well, how do we study a nonverbal or a preverbal 
thing, right? An infant. Right. <laughs> and, and they said, well, guess who does that? People who study animals, right, are always trying to get answers, get information, ask questions and get an answer from, um, from a, a subject that cannot you know, have a conversation with you. Um, so in some ways it's really beneficial and the, and the models work really, really well back and forth but we shouldn't use that as the, the end all be all. Um, and we need to, again, my, my love of interdisciplinary stuff is, you know, you're mentioning the, you know, a seal versus a dolphin versus whatever. It's not fair. I mean, it's kind of maybe a cheesy way to say it, but it's uh, the bottom line is we need to, we don't have to ignore or not do those studies, but they shouldn't be the only ones we do. So is the mirror test, you know, with the mark really the way to go? Um, dolphins can't, uh, you know, they don't have hands to manipulate their body. To, so, I mean, so it's like, it's quite different. And for, um, this is one thing I tell my students a lot, which I teach a comparative cognition sem seminar. I'm teaching it this semester. It's been fun. Um, and with, you know, I always say, I think people tend to, you know, it's kind of a tongue in cheek and broad generalization, but I'm like, we overestimate, right? Human abilities because there's so much stuff that we do in front based on non-conscious factors of, of how our mind and our body and our brain work um, that we think, you know, we're a conscious, intelligent decision, right? So we overestimate our abilities um, and we underestimate other species abilities. And the truth is usually somewhere in between, right? And the, the question then is to figure that all out and go through all the weeds and kind of, kind of tease it apart while not losing the forest, you know, so I'm always like zoom in, zoom out, you know, kind of look at the small things, but then get the big picture because you have to take in their evolutionary history, their, mm -hmm. you know, life cycle, their, um, you know, like, are they social or not? All of those things. What's their environment? So if you were to, you know, you look at a dolphin um, who can echolocate and I'm like, if a dolphin were to ask if I was intelligent by putting a box on the table and asking me what was inside, I would fail. And they would say, wow, she's really not intelligent. <laughs> Humans are I not intelligent. That. I love but that example. To them, it's so easy. They see right through it, you know? That's right. Oh, I mean, they, they literally have x-ray vision, um, yeah. essentially. And yeah, I mean, I think about this, sometimes I've talked about intelligence in this way, like, you know, it's really not, there's not a, a fair comparison. Right. And okay, so some people can do physics, and that's great, but squirrels right. do it all the time. I mean, right. they don't need paper, right, or computers. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a few that miss, maybe that would have helped. <laughs> Every once in a while, yeah. You know, <laughs> And, and, you know, and they, but they face that challenge and their skill level, you try to get me to judge. I can't even, and people vary on this too. I can't judge the distance between myself, a basketball and a basket. Yeah, like, yeah. So if you try to tell me I have to jump from this tree to that tree, mm -hmm. I will fail and, because I won't, I can't do that calculation. Um, right. All the different levels of intelligences, even within humans. Yes. And so I always, you know, sort of, and, and that's what I also love about, you know, your work and your perspective on this, because I think differences are, there are differences, no matter what species you look at, there are places where we're different and there are places where we're not different. Mm -hmm. And um, now you've worked with pinnipeds and and uh, you don't see a lot of, of this kind of work done. It's like you mentioned on, on bottlenose dolphins and then of course the great apes or other non-human primates. So to what extent have you investigated or are investigating how these things apply to seals, sea lions and walruses? 
while right now most of the work in this realm that I'm doing is with the Long Island Aquarium in Riverhead, New York, and uh, we work with their uh, seals. They have harbor seals and sea lions, the California sea lions. And the the questions we're asking are kind of you know we I'll, I'll call it like our lab work, meaning like where we can do controlled laboratory studies with animals that we can uh, you know control variables for, right? We can um, train them right using operant conditioning like you know just typical stuff like you might train your dog to to sit and give them a treat right so there there are expert animal care team and trainers there who are able to um who have been able to work with the pinnipeds there on teaching them uh to play a game really where they interact with an apparatus they interact with a board that has um you know, doors that open and close so they could see different things and then they choose. So it, it's a, it, it, we really have set up a game for them there. And so the types of things we're looking at have two broad scopes to them in that, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think of it like, well, why, you know, the big question is, why do you, why do this? What do you learn? Who cares? You know, <laughs> and, um, and one is to understand cognitive mechanisms in general. Right. So we can learn about um, how these animals learn stuff. Um, and one of the things that we've been looking at um, is how do, how do, can they use an image, like a picture, a 2D image to represent something? So, so getting at the idea of symbolic representation in, in a way, um, but really just how are they perceiving? So if they know a, um, uh, an object like a ball and then they see a picture of the exact same ball, for a human, that's a no-brainer, right? We see the picture or I see a picture of you, I know it's you and <laughs> I'm right. not surprised by, uh, you know, by that. Like if you were to walk into the room and there's a picture of you, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's a picture of you, right? I make that connection. Um, but do animals do that? And the, it's often assumed that they do, but we don't really know. And there's a lot of different ways and questions we have to ask that they would have to answer in certain ways to tell us that they are using a picture interchangeably, you know, that mentally this two-dimensional image is similar to or representative of the actual object itself. Um, so, so far, um, there, there's a lot more stuff we got to do to pull apart all the ins and outs of it and lots of different, you know, controls and so on to run. But um, so far, it seems that the answer is yes. Um, so we have some data to indicate yes, but we got a lot more to go before we can say that with a lot of confidence and different versions of it. But um, so that's one thing. It's just like, how the heck do they do that? How do, and that applies to humans as well. Right. So it's about the cognitive mechanism and looking at it in another species that doesn't have language the way we have it, because we are muddled with language. And there's so many things you can't pull apart the mechanism of and you can't pull language away from it. So unless you're working with a, you know, non-linguistic subject, you can't you can never tease that apart as a variable. So you can just look at them as a model animal species for general cognitive mechanisms. But then the other realm is just, I really wanna know how they think um, as, as, a, as pinnipeds broadly, because I care about them in the wild and, and we see what they do and how they live, right? Um, and how they function just as, as organisms. And, um, and it's like, well, how do they do that? And we see them doing things in the field. So the, another branch of research is uh, in the field. So my colleague, um, Kevin Wu and I, he 
and I have been doing field research um, on the seals in New York City for a long time now, um, about over 10 years now. And, you know, we want to know how they're doing what they're doing in their normal seal life, if you will. And so we can do field work to see how they're reacting to things and what they're doing out there but we can't do any controlled experiments unless we're in a laboratory. So we like to pair the two and say, you know, it looks like when we see these animals in the wild, they're doing X, Y, Z. Are they able? Do they have the cognitive ability and skill to do this, you know, with this type of thing? And, you know, then we could pull that apart in the lab with the animals that are, that are trained to answer a question by playing a game with us. So we really need to, to put those, those kind of things together. And we're big proponents of the lab and the field work. Um, most people, and it's somewhat not necessarily out of interest, but out of training, uh, or I should say not out of lack of interest, but often it's due to our training or just our opportunities. Um, But many are either a lab or a field researcher. Um, So we've been very lucky to be able to do both and combine them um, more internally um, because you wanna, if you have something in the lab, you, you know, the term that pops up is ecologically valid, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? So who cares if they can look at this picture of a ball? What the heck does it have anything to do with these, you know, animals that are living their lives in, in the wild? And so, you know, we're, we're always trying to put those things together. So the stuff in the lab has all of the controls, but the stuff in the field has all of the ecological validity. And then neither one answers it perfectly. But when you put them together, you can get a much better picture of, of what's happening. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, you know, that you do both because so, you know, I've had an interest in personality and um, in I've used lemurs in the sort of semi free ranging, you know, but, but controlled experiments, right. Uh, where we can separate individuals, test their response to novel object or novel person or Mm -hmm. novel food. Um, and then we've done it in their social groups. So to what extent does that modify when someone else is around who goes first to check out something? Um, and how does that relate to maybe dominance position? But then, you know, in the field, like thinking about, well, why would it matter, right? Whether you are quote bold or dominant, um, or, or shy. Uh, And there's been some good stuff on birds that have done things in the wild versus in controlled experiments. And I also study prairie dogs. And so I sort of thinking about, well, what are the implications like of being a certain personality type or having, and is it fixed? If you're this, are you always this? Mm -hmm. Like we're not right. It depends on who's around. And so to, so, you know, but it's always so messy in the field, right? There's all these other things. Um, And so speaking of the field and seals in the wild. (laughs) um, So I went to grad school at Stony Brook and I know, I know the Long Island Aquarium at Riverhead. In fact, I forget the name of the, the um, director, but I used to go in the back where they have injured sea turtles and, you know, um, and they, they really play a big role in rescuing and, and rehabilitating when possible, um, all kinds of, of marine animals. But I remember going out to Montauk and I think those were harbor seals, right? That I saw bobbing up and down. Probably there's some gray seals out there now. I don't know if they were there back then, but yeah, mostly Um, harbor. 
Okay. And so you said you, you kind of slipped in there that you've done this work in New York City. And yes. tell me a little bit about like the history of, have they always been there um, in, in, in New York City? Yes and no. Uh, historically, they were there. So about, oh, I don't know, over 100 years ago, there were seals there. So around the turn of the century with industrialization, they seem to disappear. Um, and they've been documented more recently within the last 20 years, um, kind of around. So the the big story is that they were here, they were in New York waterways, um, they disappeared, and they became essentially locally extinct to the New York City waterways. And they're back. So then our question is, what the heck happened? What is happening? Um, historically, it's obviously much harder to really put that all together. And there's not a lot of information out there. Um, if anyone has any, I would love to hear from them. <laughs> There's mostly random newspaper articles, you know, that will mention mate, that there was, you know, a seal um, in, interacting, like some kind of thing written up where there was a negative interaction between a seal and a fisherman or something okay. that ends up in the newspaper. Um, so we know that they were there, but we don't know what the population numbers were like. And there's no data that I'm aware of anyway, um, uh, you know, from that time period, but they were here. Um, and now they're coming back. So why? I don't know. And we are doing really, I mean, it's it's longitudinal, right? And it's going to be indefinitely longitudinal to, to answer these types of questions. And there's a number of working hypotheses or ideas of why, but we know they are definitely back. They are consistent. What our data is showing is that there are seals, um, primarily harbor seals, but there's a sprinkling of gray seals. Um, in New York City waterways and that they are going into the New York Harbor. And, you know, they're they're out there in one of the busiest harbors in the world, which is really interesting. Um, you go right past the Verrazano Bridge and there's two man-made islands, um, Hoffman Island and Swinburne Island. And they're they're often hauled out on Hoffman, uh, I'm sorry, on Swinburne Island, sometimes off. And they're also yeah, off of uh, Pelham Bay Park, Orchard Beach um, in the Bronx. So they are they are here uh, and they're here year after year, at least since we've been studying them, we've been able to document a consistent um, population coming back to, you know, to New York. And we're tracking to see, is it growing? There's an upward trend, but it's, it's small. So, you know, maybe in another one, two, three years, we'll know if there's any actual significant trend or if it's just, you know, little ups and downs with a relatively stable, but they're stable um, and they're here. And then the question becomes why? One major reason it, it, that I think is safe to say, at least in part, is that our waterways are cleaner than they've been in a really long time. So when you have a species like a harbor seal or a gray seal, you know, these are top marine predators. So they don't survive unless the whole food chain below them is, is thriving. Um, so we know the waterways are cleaner. Um, the fish are better. The fish are back. Uh, and there are other marine mammals that are coming back as well. I don't study them myself, but there's dolphins um, and there are humpback whales, um, you know, that were and have been around, but their numbers or at least their sightings have been going up. Um, so it's a good indication that the, you know, that the work that we've been doing as a society, um, as a as a country, and um, you know, and definitely locally in terms of the the waterways, has been paying off. 
Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's loads of questions I have uh, with a lot of things that you said, but what you just finished with in terms of it's, it's signaling to us that we've done a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we sometimes hear about species being indicator species, yeah. which, which means basically they give us a snapshot, um, of the health of any given system and at any moment in time. Right. Right. And, and and which also means they can be an early warning sign. Yes. That something is wrong. And so if we go with the idea that they left the area because something was wrong and mm-hmm. they're back in the area because something is right. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent do you think marine mammals in general and 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 seals and and walruses and, and as you mentioned, just sort of top predators? Mm. Do they tell us about the particular health of a given environment that they depend on? I mean, you mentioned the fish. So, to, so are they, if we start to see the seals, I guess what I'm getting at is if we yeah. start to see the seals leave yeah. these places that they've returned to, what does that mean for us? Like, what does that tell us? That means that we should take notice, <laughs> really, and that we we need to see what has changed, you know, just before this. Um, there's always lag time, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult, right? These things don't happen overnight where you change a policy and then suddenly the seals leave and you go, oh, that was a bad idea. Yeah, I would, I would say if they start to leave, that means we're doing something wrong, potentially. Not definitely, right? But potentially. Um, and... They seem to be here, at least, you know, the the seals are here right now and they are here in spite of human population. I mean, New York City is obviously a heavily populated area and um, seals are not known to hang out around people, right? They are, (laughs) they are mostly in the water. They come out of the water for, for certain reasons. And one of them is to rest and to thermoregulate, to warm up their body um, while they rest. So they're not you know, going to haul out, um, they're not going to come ashore in an area where there's a lot of people because that could be, you know, a predator or, you know, threat, whether we're a predator or not, but just any predator, they want to stay kind of more isolated. They're more vulnerable in, in that position when they're, when they're out of the water. So they are doing it anyway, even though there's a lot of people around and a lot of boats around. So the, the water must be pretty good. Like, it's like, there's some tipping scale where there must be enough resources, enough good resources, right? Not just fish, but the right kinds of fish, the right variety of fish. Um, And that means that the fish have the right fish to eat, right? Down the food Mm -hmm. chain to the smaller ones and all the way down to the plankton, right? And, uh, you know, as everything, all the filter feeders, and there's a lot of work on, um, you know, putting in some, uh, you know, uh, oyster beds and and so on to help um, the waterways as well that have been very successful. Um, so I, I think I'm going off on a tangent, but that is generally, yeah, that it's all connected. And if we see something change with the seals that is not directly related to something obvious, like we constructed something um, in an area near a haulout, which is another reason we're, you know, we've been in contact in the in the past, like um, Noah and the um, uh you know, has reached out and wanted some data to know, like, we want to know what the animals are, are around. So what if they want to build a new airport one day? Or in particular, after Hurricane Sandy, they, they wanted to know what's going on with the wildlife, um, you know, to put in some kind of protocols for if, you know, for the fact that our, our shorelines are changing with climate change. Um, and we need to be thinking about that and, and possible construction on the shorelines and how that might impact wildlife. Um, and one thing that 
you know, as you mentioned, with the, you don't think about seals when you hear the city. Um, and most people, I would say, from a, a survey that we did, and no, we didn't survey all of New York City, but um, in in uh, basically Queens and Brooklyn area that we were able to, to collect data in, um, one question in the survey or one you know area was, are you even aware that are you aware that there are seals in New York waterways? And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. Um, and most people find it interesting, are excited to hear about it, and um, you know think it's cool. And then when you ask, well, you know, do you think they're important? And if so, why? So the general, you know, I'll say everybody in quotes, it wasn't every single survey, right? But overwhelmingly, everyone says uh, that it is, that they didn't know seals were here. They want them to stay. They think it's cool. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and that they are important because they're part of the ecosystem, but they don't know why they're important. So you see this real need uh, across the board, but I would argue in an urban area, a real strong need to have individuals connect with nature um, and to understand, you know, what we'll often call, you know, the, the um, flora and fauna in your backyard, right? And that if you talk to someone in New York City and you ask what's, you know, what kind of animals are in your, your backyard and you, you get all sorts of answers and seals is not one of them or dolphins <laughs> or whales, right? That are out there too. Sure. Um, and while I, I will say um, I like plankton very much myself, most people do not necessarily have a soft spot in their heart for plankton. Um, so if you want to connect with just humans as people um, and connect those people to their environment so that way they care. So if something does change and we say the seals are leaving or, um, you know, there's an issue with fisheries and, and overfishing, which is going to impact, right? Many people will be more concerned just because it's, uh, again, cycling back to just human psychology and nature and things, you know, there's also, we like, as they say, the charismatic megafauna, right? <laughs> like that. Right. Well, they have the big eyes, right? The big which eyes. Is, is what, it's why we focus yes. on pandas, even though yes. pandas are kind of an evolutionary dead end. Yes. No offense to pandas, right? <laughs> but but seals are not. They're part yeah. of a complex, you know, kind of uh, web of interactions. And and but there's also this flip side of people being excited about seals yeah. that they can be interacting dangerously for themselves and for yeah. the seals. True. So so for the listeners, you know, let's let's have this like let's be responsible and respectful of nature. What is the right way? to interact with seals. Don't. <laughs> so, um, they are super cute and there is a psychology of cute and they fit under there uh, for sure about what these different triggers are for us. Um, they are most definitely cute, but they are wild animals. They're not aggressive by, by nature um, in, in the sense of, you know, just going to come out of the water and like go after somebody, but they are wild animals with big claws and big teeth. Um, and they are incredibly powerful and incredibly strong. Um, so, you know, they will get defensive, they will get scared, um, and, and they will bite. So, um, you know, stay away. Um, it's illegal as well. It's against the Marine Mammal Protection Act to go near them. There are times, and this is something that, um, individuals who kayak might've experienced, you know, you're out on the water and sometimes they come to you. I've been scuba diving and, and, you know, they've, 
they'll approach you. <laughs> um, and in that case, I say just, you know, just slowly swim away or just, you know, chill and they will investigate you and then they'll go about their business. But, you know, you're not going to be able to outrun them if they come up to to check you out. Um, they're very, very curious. But if you're just, you know, boating, you're just at the beach, you're just minding your business, you know, and you're not a, snor- a snorkel or a scuba diver in in the water with them, they won't go anywhere near you. Sure. You know, they're so so stay away from them and they'll stay away from you and and um, everybody will be happier. Well, and respecting the personal space of other species is pretty darn important. And I remember when I was in California, the sea lions were hauled out and people were constantly like within two feet of and and, and taking pictures and, you know, people feed wildlife. And Mm. and so there's this. You know, this, I think this is one of the reasons why you started uh, the Center for the Study of Pinniped Ecology and Cognition. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear a little bit about it, but I, I think you also do a, t- a ton of public outreach and education. And so it's so important that, you know, we are triggered by the big eyes and the cute face yeah. and the long whiskers. And we're like, ah, oh, que lindo, <laughs> ah! And, and people have this, you know, and, and so on the one hand, it's great that people want to connect with nature and there are appropriate ways to do that. So, yeah. you know, tell me a little bit about the center and and the work that you're doing and what the goal is. Sure. Yeah. And um, and I should before I get into that, too, I should say one excellent way to um, to connect with these is to do a seal walk. Um, there are places, so we we don't. C-Spec does not um, specifically do it, but Cresley um, on Long Island does. So there there are places. Um, so Dr. Artie Kopelman has been doing this for, for a long time. He's the president and, and creator of Cresley out there. And one thing that they do are seal walks. So um, you know you can definitely one either just you know happen to to see them right. Um, and and I will say you need binoculars and so on because they're out in the water. They're not near the shore. At least in New York City, you need very high power binoculars to see them. Um, but yeah, so you, you can go to Long Island and and do these types of things. And the Pelham Bay Park has one as well. Um, I don't know how often it goes or if it's on a real set schedule, but every so often they do have them um, where they'll they'll do like a nature walk um, with the park rangers and then they'll stop um, and, you know, take out a scope so people can look through and see them out on, on their rocks. But when, when they're out there, you know, like anything, I think once we become connected um, emotionally, psychologically, um, you know, with, with the environment and the animals within it, you know, we want to respect them. So the, the seals are out there to, to rest, <laughs> right? So those sea lions that you mentioned, you know, they're, they're trying to rest. They have a specific biological function that they're trying to take care of. And, and if we don't give them their space and appreciate them and get to see them in a, in a, in a way that's respectful of their space, um, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to be around when we want to see them another time. Right. And I'll put a, I'll try to find a, a links to some of these things like seal walk oh, yeah, where people yeah. can safely do that, um, in the show notes, um, so that they have the opportunity if they're living in this area to, um, do this in a really safe and mm. respectful way. Great. That'd be great. So C-Spec was kind of born from, um, Dr. Kevin Wu and I, uh, just, 
having similar research interests. And I had been doing work with the Long Island Aquarium and we got to talking and I honestly, I... (laughs) I don't know, maybe he could, he could say, I don't remember which one of us, um, I'm going to say he did it. I'll give him the credit. I'm pretty sure it came from him. Um, you know, mentioned what about doing some field stuff, you know, and, and so we decided to just start checking it out because we knew they were in the area. There were all these anecdotal stories. Um, you know, people would say, oh yeah, I see seals at Coney Island. I see seals here. And that we were like, really? Um, so it was like, you know, kind of this okay, let's find them. Let's see where they are. And if there's any truth to it slash consistency to it. And is it a random seal that swims by once in a while, or are they really here? Um, So then we started doing the field work together. Um, And then as that grew, and then we merged kind of the lab and field um, aspects of the research, we had always both really been, it had been really important to both of us to work with um, students, undergraduate students, since we're both at a, you know, universities, but, um, uh, but broadly to educate, right? And so first, you know, just where we were already at educating our students, but educating just people um, about stuff that we loved and stuff that we, you know, feel is important, such as the environment, um, you know, through the lens of these animals. Um, And we decided to create something bigger than just having this, you know, lab, this work that we did together and said, well, you know, why don't we form a center? Um, And so we, you know, work pretty hard. And and now we say we have our three branches as kind of our spiel, right? So we have the the lab work at the Long Island Aquarium. We have the field work looking at these wild animals in the New York City waterways. And then we have our our education and outreach uh, conservation component um, where with that, we host, um, you know, events pre-COVID anyway, right? We'll get back to it, but hosting on-campus events. Um, And so we've done some really cool ones where we, you know, have like a multi-hour or day-long thing, workshops and speakers and really just interactive. Um, A lot of local schools will come and and so on. And um, then we'll also go places. So sometimes people ask, you know, either of us to talk. It could be something like we spoke once at a scuba club, you know, uh, We'll, we'll go to preschools. Um, so really anywhere that wants to uh, get some information. And so we're working on having, um, well, I said we do have, we want to formalize it, I guess I'll say, as we as we continue to, to move forward, um, more of um, formal education programs. Um, right now, it's really us and a couple students, right? We're a small, small operation. But to be able to do keep doing what we're we've been doing in, in maybe a more formal way. But um yeah, so talking to high schools, um, having events on campus where we bring in different school groups, um, and you know, they're just open to the general public broadly. That's that you know, it's public outreach and education is so important and also mentoring students, which is also something that you um do spectacularly. Um and 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 so, you know, I think that this is also one of the reasons why I do this podcast and, and you can add doing podcasts to the list of things that you do. Um, and so how can people help, right? Either helping the center or helping seals. What is something that people can do to help the seals? I mean, really it would be to support, uh, I guess two two main things come to mind would be, um, you know, to donate slash volunteer, right? Um, and the Riverhead Foundation and other such, you know, local um, areas, uh, um, 
different resources. They do such amazing work, you know, and they're, uh, our work that we do is, you know, the research and the communication of science and so on. But, um, you know, there are other organizations who are on the ground, you know, with the animals that need the, the help in the moment um, for any ones that are stranded or, or anything like that. But the other would be to just take small steps, just a small step to be more environmentally aware. Um, one of the most disheartening things to me is to see balloons. Um, and and I love balloons. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it, it's a conundrum, but um, there are so many helium balloons that you see in the water when you're out there. So we take a boat, we charter a boat, we uh, work with New York Media Boat to see, um, to collect our data um, in the New York Harbor. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of trash, right? Um, and any small steps to, to not either to, you know, to recycle the, the cheesy reduce, reuse, recycle sure. stuff, right? But those things are, are really critical because um, uh, in the city or in an urban environment, you might not realize even in New York City where you're surrounded by water technically, uh, right, or an island um, is this disconnect and that if you, you know, toss something and it doesn't go in the trash can, like, okay, but everything ends up in the water, yeah. everything. And it's getting worse with um, the the PPE and mask, uh, yes. uh, you know, discarding them. I mean, our oceans and our waters are filling up with with new trash now. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but I think these are really practical things, right? You can either volunteer or donate. Um, and I'll make sure I put links to the Riverhead Foundation um, on the on the show notes. And also, I don't know if there are ocean cleanups, right? I don't know if yeah. I mean, there's beach cleanups. I beach know that. Cleanups, yeah. And so, you know, one can pick up trash and not throw trash away. So there's two levels of engagement there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know you're really busy and you, you do so much great work. Thank you for being on the show. It, I've really been, I feel I have been fortunate to see Harbor Seals um, from New York to Iceland mm. and sea lions in California and in Australia. And, you know, I, I feel always very like privileged when I have that opportunity to see um, animals living their lives, doing their thing, whatever yeah, it is. In every, every climate. That's they another are. great thing about pinnipeds. They're everywhere. Right. <laughs> There's a certain species in every climate. You can find them everywhere. And, and we want to keep that happening. So thank you for the work you're doing and for the insights you're sharing about how how they think and do the things they do and what that can tell us about us. Thank you very much. How do we know that other species have consciousness, theory of mind, and emotional intelligence? I'm going to turn that question on its head and instead ask, how do we know that they don't? Frankly, we have been chasing down how to prove we have consciousness. Do we because we say we do? There are loads of scientists that continue to reframe the similarities we share with other species in these and many other areas as actually different. For example, rather than accept that ravens can plan for the future better than a four-year-old child, Dr. Johan Lind, Associate Professor in Ethology at the Center for Cultural Evolution at Stockholm University, basically argues, wait, wait, they can do all of those things but they don't have consciousness. They do it by simple associative learning, whereas we have consciousness. My question for Dr. Lind would be, well, can't the same be said for us?
Once again, we cannot rely on human language to define human and other animal capabilities. Just because we say it in whatever language we speak, that we are conscious, does not mean one, that we are, and two, more importantly, that because other animals don't say it in human language, they aren't. If you haven't listened to my episode, Look Who's Talking, with Dr. Konslobodchikov, make sure you check it out because the reality is that other animals are doing a whole lot of talking. And if we consider that they're not so different from us in all these ways, then just as we believe we have the right to independence, autonomy, pursuit of goals, the joy of companionship, family, and community, then don't they? More and more courts and countries are beginning to think so and are recognizing the rights of individual animals and entire species. I'm going to explore what independence means for other species, well, of course, on July 4th. For now, with regard to consciousness, I suggest we contemplate an idea that Aristotle had, that the mind is in the heart, and when we listen from our heart, we become more conscious. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and give it a like and share it so other people can find it too. Don't forget to check out the show notes where you can find links to Dr. Christy Biolsi, her lab, and the Riverhead Foundation as a way to get involved and do something to help all those wonderful pinnipeds out there. You can find the show notes on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean, or on my website, jenniferverdelin.com.